Today, uh, I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, we are in the middle of a series. Um, perhaps you've noticed that we have been doing, and it shouldn't be the middle, we're actually near the end, of a series on questions God asks. And I have been loving this series. Because when we go to the Bible, we see there are quite a few places where God asks a question. But how many of you realize he doesn't ask because he doesn't know the answer? When God asks, he is trying to bring our attention to something. He's trying to adjust our perspective. When God asks a question, really he's asking you to ask that question and find the answer. So in, in chapter 40 of Isaiah, he's going to ask a question, but I want to set the stage first. Isaiah chapter 39 is a pretty radical, is this sounding funny to you guys? All right, sorry. In Isaiah 39, there is a very radical prophecy. The Israelites discover that Babylon will conquer them and they will go into exile. Woo! Like, how exciting. No, like that is not like the news you've been praying and waiting to hear. That's what they heard in Isaiah 39. And then... In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, God asks a question. Why do you complain, Jacob? I, I, for most of us, it's probably an easy answer. Uh, because something isn't how I want it. Th that's, that's why I complain. I complain because something isn't the way I want it. And I don't know with certainty that that was the only issue on Isaiah's plate, but he had just discovered, whoa, Israel is going to go into exile. There's going to be some majorly unpleasant things happening. And God looks at him and says, why do you complain? Our first answer, well, if it's not the way I want it, don't, aren't I supposed to complain? I mean, doesn't the squeaky wheel get the grease? Is that how it works in the kingdom of God? Think about Paul for a second. <clears throat> James, uh, well, in the New Testament, James 1, 2 through 4, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. That does not sound like squeaky wheel gets the grease mentality. So I want to look at several reasons why he says, why do we complain? And his implication then, let's continue in the verse, verse 27, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, another name for Jacob, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. Hold on a minute. Is that probably what he intended to say? Oh man, things aren't the way I want them to be. And God says, why do you say that I have disregarded you? It's interesting. And he says, verse 28, he says, do you not know have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and earth. He will not grow weary. 
shocked or tired. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. Now, how many of you remember that verse? How many of you are familiar with the verse, they will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary? How many of you knew that came right after telling people to not complain? Like, sometimes we just, we, we know those verses, they're, they're on the fridge, you can buy the towel that has it written right on it, hang it over the handle of your stove, but we forget what the context is. God said, hey, why are you complaining? Don't you realize? Here's the number one reason that we ought not to complain. In this verse it says, because complaining is rooted in denial of God's provision, his attention, and his love. When I focus on lack, I am taking my focus off of his power, his provision, and his love. What I'm saying is, I am expecting more of this, not more of what you are, what you've promised me you can do and will do. Think back to the Garden of Eden. It was paradise. Literally paradise. I mean, we think, oh, yeah, the Caribbean and the palm trees, that's paradise. No, it's called paradise because of this paradise. This is it. This is perfection. There's Adam and Eve. Satan comes in. And he wants Adam and Eve to sin. Nobody has sinned before. In order to do it, he has to create discontentment and get Adam and Eve to take a step towards complaining. And he, he gets them all the way there. And he says, hey, if God knows, this is what he said. He says, God knows your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You want this because if you have this, you'll be like God. One of, one of the things that goes hands in hands with complaining is comparison. Notice, we don't complain about the things that we think we have better than everyone else. What we complain about is what we think we don't measure up at. You know what? I mean, everybody has some difficulty, but I have more than them, and so I'm going to complain. I mean, I have some money, but I don't have as much as they do, so I'm going to complain. See, Satan convinced a perfect man and a perfect woman in a perfect place to compare themselves against a perfect God and then feel inadequate. Sin entered the world because they were ready to compare Complaining and comparison go hand in hand. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not 
wise. I don't think they had that one on the screen because I added it last minute. So I'll read it one more time. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. Complaining comes from comparison. Comparison, according to Scripture, is not wise. It's not wise. And it is a tool that Satan has been using. The first person he ever got to sin, he got to sin by convincing them to compare themselves and then be dissatisfied with the comparison that they made. Well, I'm not like God, so I think I need to do this. Let's, let's try this fruit, see what happens. I mean, we want to be like God. Why, why did God make us not like him? He did. He made you in his image. But Satan still convinced them they weren't enough like him, that he had something they didn't have. He put a, a heart of discontentment in them. If you're taking notes, the first reason for not comp uh, complaining is because it's rooted in a denial of God's provision, attention, and love. The second reason is a little shorter. To obey God. Philippians chapter 4, verse two, or verses 14 to 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. We should be able to just stop at that, right? God said, don't do it. He says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. When? When will you shine? When you stop grumbling and arguing. Matthew 6, 27 says, Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? When we fret and work, does it, does it bring a benefit? You see, God has set a standard for our thoughts and our speech. He has told us what to think on, what to speak about. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. Okay, let's stop there. Whatever is true. Kids do this all the time. He's bald. Shh, don't say that. But it's true. You know, he's bald. She's fat. I don't like that kid. I don't, and they're just blurting stuff. And we're sitting there, hey, no. Just because it's true doesn't mean you should go around saying that and focusing on that. But as adults, we do the same thing. Well, but it's true. I don't have as much as he does. But it's true. This isn't going the way that I want it to. Shouldn't I speak on that and focus on that and bring that up? And God says, like a good parent, he says, no. Just because it's true doesn't mean that's what you should be focusing on and that's what you should be speaking. Let's go back to verse 8. It starts out with whatever is true, but then it says whatever is noble, whatever is right. 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, can any of you think of something to complain about that is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? That's a tough order. When we follow God's pattern for our focus, he says, this is what I want you to focus on. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, says we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them. Look at verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. God says, I gave you examples of the grumbling, complaining Israelites, but I did that so that you would not repeat their mistakes. He says, I put them there as an example. And I'm telling you, don't do that. Reason number two, when we avoid complaining, we are obeying God. Number three, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9 through 13 says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what is needed, what it is what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, and in any and every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in pleasant, plenty or in want. Here's another one of those uh, verses from the, from the towel. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. We knew that one was there. Did we remember it was right after the don't grumble and complain? Why don't you grumble and complain? Because I can do all things through Christ's strength. Be content in every circumstance. The number third reason is because a perfect life is not the source of happiness. Listen, even secular studies have figured this out. Let's see, which university was it? It was... Purdue University and University of Virginia did a study. And they discovered that after a certain amount of money to cover your basic needs, the, you can keep getting richer, you don't get happier. They said once your, your needs are met, your emotional well-being does not increase with the income that you receive. $60,000, they said, after that, it's actually a decline in emotional well-being as income goes up. Most of us wouldn't have guessed that. I said, you know, yeah, you can get some benefit, but then you actually start going downhill when you keep adding to it. We get this idea that our well-being is going to be improved. The other thing they said they said the same study came to this conclusion. Money can buy you happiness if you spend it on other people. 
In other words, even when you have the money, if you spend it on yourself, their study says they don't get any happier. The people who actually get happier are the ones who are following the other biblical principles. It's better to give than receive. And would they understand that their blessing and their finances isn't there just to make them better? They're not complainers. They've found that happiness comes in serving others, in fulfilling the purpose that God has given them. You see, the lack of the lack of imperfections does not equate to happiness. Number four, James chapter 5 verse 9 says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Oh. Number four, complaining invites judgment. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 3 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Isn't that what a complaint is? I judge you to be lacking. I judge this to be lacking. I am declaring my judgment of insufficiency on my situation, on that person. And God says, when you judge, you invite judgment on yourself. <laughs> when, when I read the New Testament, the Pharisees, in my mind, are the supervillains. I mean, have you ever noticed, like, they're the only people that Jesus really comes down hard on. And he is, he's there with, with the, the, the tax collectors, who are thieves, by the way, and the prostitutes. I mean, all these different types of, of blatant sinners. And who does he come hardest on? The Pharisees. And what is their sin? They are guilty of judging everyone else as being less than themselves. They are guilty of hypocrisy. Matthew 23, verse 25, it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup, and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. See, what invited such strict judgment from Jesus against the Pharisees? It was their strict judgment of everyone around them. When we are pointing a finger, we are inviting God, it is a, listen, it is a spiritual principle. You sow and you reap. If I plant seeds, they grow. If I judge others, I will be judged. Period. That's how it works. 
You remember the story of the unforgiving servant? How he had owed a bunch of money and he was just forgiven? When did it start to go bad for him? When he refused to forgive the others. When he judged his neighbor to be out of line and said, hey, I am going to come down on you for being out of line. God said, oh, wait a minute. All right, now, now we are going to hold you to the standard that you're holding him. If we... <laughs> when we complain and we grumble... We are inviting judgment. God says, don't. Don't point out the speck in your neighbor's eye. Because you have something in your eye as well. Proverbs 66, verse 16 through 19 says, There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and here's the one we're we're going for today, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. (laughs) So, my family is a community. We are eight people, and we decided to drive to Gulf Shores in a car. For 15 hours. Do you want to know what stirred up conflict within the community the quickest? Daddy, he is. It was the blaming, the complaining. I don't like what he's doing. I don't like what she's doing. They're touching. They're speaking. They're breathing too hard. They're looking my way. They're touching my seat. They're doing this. Nothing destroyed the peace faster than the person who was complaining about others. And you know what was weird is they always thought the problem was the person they were complaining about. Everybody else in the car knew if we could just get them to stop complaining. And they're all confused. Why is dad and mom, why are they just keep coming down on the complainer? I mean, his hand isn't where it belongs. And that's us. We're complaining about the situation. And God says, wait, the real problem is You're seeking ways and purpose to be discontent. You're complaining. Listen, I could get, if if we stop, and and, and I could prove it. We get them to stop touching, looking, chewing loud, doing whatever it is they're doing. That same person that was complaining moments later is upset about something else. Well, now he's not looking. He's He's not making noises anymore, but he's looking at me. Make him stop looking at me. Well, he's not poking my seat anymore, but but now he's making a weird noise. You see, God says a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Number five. First Peter. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, that, that sounds important, whatever he's going to say. Above all, love each other deeply because why do we love because well i mean that's easy there's lots of songs about it love makes the world go round um because love wins or because all you need is love no he says love because love covers a multitude of sins you see Love is the lubricant of life. Without love, every little thing is unbearable. Every little thing is unbearable. If you love, now, my wife loves dogs, she loves dogs. We have dogs. She loves those dogs. If you ask her about those dogs, you will hear only positive things. Is that because there are no negative things to say? No, it's not. Now, my wife does not love cats. We have a cat. Her nickname is Creepy Cat. She goes, she's laughing, she's repeating, she's a creepy cat. Because he meows, or she meows occasionally. She'll, she'll meow, she'll sneak around. Have you ever heard a cat meow? Have you ever heard a dog bark? A 90-pound dog bark. I have heard more about the meow than the 90-pound bark. Our neighbors have written us letters about the 90-pound the, the, the bark. I'm not, this is serious. My wife has never complained about the bark. She loves the dog. Love covers a multitude of sins. The reason, <laughs> one of the reasons that we are told, we are told to love because God understands. When you love, then your complaints will be reduced. Let's keep going in this. <clears throat> it says, because love covers over a multitude of sins, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. There it is. There's the connection. He says, love, because love covers a multitude of sins, now if you've loved and you're covering that multitude of sins, you can offer hospitality without grumbling. You each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, listen to this, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. So, <clears throat> why should I not complain? Because when I speak, I am to speak as though I am speaking the very words of God. What do the very words of God do when they are spoken? They affect reality. 
when I speak negatively, when I choose to focus my attention and especially my words on whatever it is that has discontented me, then I am speaking. I am supposed to speak as though I am God. And if, I am, if God came down and said, you're annoying, I don't like you, you make me miserable, what would that do? God has commissioned us to speak on his behalf. What does that make our complaints? What are my complaints? Where did I put it? The dictionary's definition of a curse is an offensive word or phrase used to express anger or annoyance. Curse. An offensive word or phrase used to express anger or annoyance. When I am speaking on behalf of God, my complaints, my words have become curses about my annoyance. I need to be careful how I speak. 1 Peter 4.11 says, as one who speaks the very words of God. That's how we're supposed to speak. As one who speaks the very words of God. My words have the power of death and life. Proverbs 18 says, the tongue has power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. <clears throat> James chapter 3 verse 1 says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So he's acknowledging controlling your speech is, is challenging. And then he goes into the examples and he says that when you put a bit in the mouth of a horse, you make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. Or take ships for an example. Although they are so large, they are driven by strong winds. They are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, your tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. I want to read this. This is, this is the key right here. Number, verse 9 and 10. He says, With the tongue we praise our Heavenly Father. And that's what we were doing here tonight. At the beginning of the service, we were praising Heavenly Father. And then he says, And with that same tongue, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. We talked, I think it was on Sunday night, we talked about honor and speaking God's purpose for someone other than what we see. It says, the people who have been made in God's likeness, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, 
This should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? So back to God's question. He says, why do you complain? I think the answer has many different parts. We complain because some of us think it's the right thing to do. Hopefully we don't think that anymore. Some of us have a habit of complaining. And James says, you know, it is a, it is a challenge to control your tongue. No person has ever done it perfectly. But that doesn't mean that God isn't calling us to step up and be conscious of how we speak. Fresh water and salt water should not come from that same spot. We should not be harping on people and then turning around and praising the Lord. He says, you don't understand what you're doing when you do that. You are speaking on my behalf when you speak those complaints against that person. When you declare those negative things about them, you are declaring on my behalf. And your words have power. What we say and what we believe profoundly affect reality. And the number one way that our speech and our belief affects us is in our eternal destiny. If you are here today and you say, I know that I am right with God, my sins are forgiven, I have professed my faith in God and he has forgiven my sins, I want you to raise your hand. You know it. The Bible says, know that you have salvation. You might be looking around and being like, how do all these people know for sure? None of them have died yet. The Bible doesn't say, wait until you've died and discover if you did okay. The Bible says, know that you have salvation. And then it says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and you will be saved. If you're here tonight and you want to know that you are saved, with every eye closed just for a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And if you raise your hand, we are going to, right where you are, we're going to pray that prayer that's described in Romans. If that's you, if you want to know that you are forgiven, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right now. Nobody looking around. I see that hand and that hand. Here's what I'd like to do. Everyone together, let's pray. Repeat after me. Dear God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus who lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve to die, but he died on the cross for my sin. Then he defeated death rose from the dead. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, I accept your forgiveness. Amen.